Well, good morning. It's great to see you here this morning. I want to welcome those that are tuning in online. Uh, it's great having you here as well. Now, I just want to encourage us, that beginning on Thursday, Canada Day, guess what? The restrictions primarily are being lifted. There's just a few minor little ones. So that means next Sunday we can get rid of all of the signs that said this pew is closed. They're now opening up. And uh, I just want to make a statement, though. If you are, you know, a little reticent to come, you can wear a mask. That's not a problem, but you don't have to, okay? And all of the, the rules that we've been following, we don't have to follow them at this point. So that'll be a totally different environment next week. So we encourage you to come if you can. I'm excited about that. Now, we're going to stand as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Let's stand. And I want to just mention, you know, we're going to work hard at bringing everything back as fast as we possibly can. So if you want to see some of the ministries, like, you know, I was, I'm trying to get people to sign up to serve coffee next week. So if we have workers, we'll do it. If we don't have workers, we won't do it. Whose church is it? It's Christ church, but we're his bride. And that's not just the pastor and the staff. That's all of us. So whatever ministries we have moving forward, it's because you've said, hey, I want this to happen. I want to make sure we're doing all these exciting things. So we sent out an, uh, a little blurb on your email. Please look at it. Please sign up for things because we want to bring a sense of normalcy back a, as soon as possible. All right, so we're going to pray today. You know, I was praying this morning with uh, the guys in our prayer group at 8 o'clock, and my prayer today is really that God, Jesus, who is here, by the way, is going to heal the brokenhearted, so that he's going to set captives free. Maybe that's where you're at today, brokenhearted. Maybe you feel like you've got issues in your life. I believe Jesus is here to set you free. Now, I, I love counselors. I believe they're good. I think it's great people go one-on-one -on -one and work through issues. But I also believe Jesus is the ultimate counselor. He's the mighty counselor. And there are moments in our Christian journey that God can come, even in a service, and bring things to our attention and bring healing into broken places in our lives to move us forward. So I'm praying for that this morning. May you join me in our praying. So Lord, we thank you this morning that you are in our midst. Your word declares that. We believe it. You're here. You're speaking into our lives this morning. And I pray that you will identify places in our soul that are fractured and broken, that you want to bring healing and grace and strength and wholeness, and that, Father, that you're going to set captives free today. You're going to uh, bind up the brokenhearted and set captives free. I believe for that today. We've agreed, we've prayed, we're trusting, and we know that you, Lord, love your people. You love people in general, and I just pray right now that you will do a supernatural work that you, where, where, where maybe there's been uh, pain and brokenness and unresolved issues. I pray today that resolution would come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're going to go back to the book of First Peter in chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. In his book, Lives of the Caesars, Suetonius, who's a Roman writer and secretary to Hadrian. Hadrian was a Roman emperor in probably the early second part of the second century. He was probably one of the first pagan writers to mention Christianity. But his context was hardly positive. Believers are mentioned only as a class of people given 
to a new and mischievous superstition. That's how he described it. Now this charge of superstition was perhaps the most serious and most common pagan accusation against the church. The comment was repeated by Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, and in his account of the burning of Rome, he acknowledges that Nero fabricated the accusation that Christians had started the fire, but he held little sympathy for what he called the notoriously depraved believers. But what did the Romans mean by superstition? According to several prominent Roman authors, including Cicero and Plutarch, it was any offensive religious belief or practices that deviated from Roman norms, the way they lived. Certain groups were given to such quote-unquote irrational religions in which they acted unpredictably without regard for the rites, rituals, and traditions of Rome. In other words, they were interpreted as not fitting in correctly into their society. By the way, Judaism had that same problem earlier on, and any religious viewpoint that came into the Roman Empire was initially you know, suspect and eventually embraced if that religion would totally comply with where the Romans were at, which was subservience to their empire. Christians among the elite, usually philosophers and writers, refuted the charges against their religion. They were known as apologists, from the Greek word apologeo, meaning to defend. Justin Martyr, a convert from paganism, who became the best known of the early apologists, went even a step further, arguing that Christians should not be condemned unless factual evidence proved they were criminals. In other words, it wasn't that he wasn't saying that Christians never committed crimes. What he was saying was that they had to prove that these people had done criminal activities in order to be sentenced. A closer examination of the facts said will prove that Christians collectively are moral, upright, and law-abiding citizens who are actually the empire's best allies in securing good order. He said Christians obeyed Christ's command to pay taxes, which Jesus spoke of in Matthew 22, as well as the Apostle Paul's teaching to submit to governing authorities found in Romans chapter 13. So how can that be considered subversive? Even more, Christians regularly offered prayers for the emperor and the empire as part of their worship. So he was trying to show that Christians were supportive of the empire. <clears throat> now, while false accusations and persecutions continue to arise against the church, and it continues to this day, I think we also have to admit that where we have been wrong, in maybe as an institution, we need to take responsibility and acknowledge it. How many go, that's true. You know, one of the things that we all have learned in our lives is confession is powerful. And when you and I own up to what we've done wrong, we can receive God's forgiveness and we can be set free to move forward in our lives. And that's very powerful. Having said that, we also need to realize that scapegoating and blaming has always been popular sport. How many know we're living in a culture today? Nobody wants to accept any responsibility and we're quick to blame other people for our issues. That's also true as well. So we are dealing with that. So if there's one critical element in learning to enjoy life, it's really the ability to get along with people. And sometimes that can be challenging. 
Because if you live long enough, you're going to run into situations that prove themselves to be quite difficult. You know, many of us could have a job that demands long hours. Maybe there's great physical effort. But neither the hours nor the energy drains a person like dealing with difficult people. How many go, that's true? That takes the most energy out of you. And, you know, you can be struggling with finances. You could be dealing with physical pain. You can deal with a tight schedule. You can deal with, you know, miles of driving. But those are minor compared to having relational tensions in your life. Those are the things that suck the life right out of us. So learning to live successfully uh, with others is one of the most important keys to life. How many go, that's probably true. If I can learn to get along with people, I'm gonna do a lot better in this life. You know, God knows that if we're gonna impact others with the good news about Jesus, if we're gonna live healthier lives, if we're gonna enjoy life, we need to learn how to live in harmony with the people around us. So here in Peter, 1 Peter, we're gonna discover insights to dealing with people, even people who are hostile to faith. I might think that might be a bit important because I think what we're seeing and we will continue to see is a growing hostility to Christianity. So how are we gonna handle all of that? How are we gonna respond to that? This is what Peter's gonna talk about because that's what he was writing about here in 1 Peter. And he gives us, I think, insights on how to achieve harmony, how to restore broken relationships, and how to thrive even when we're being attacked. And that, you know, so I, I wrote down, how can we handle verbal attacks and now allow them to devastate our souls? So I was trying to come up with a title for the sermon. You know, I'm trying to get a little bit, uh, a little more interesting in my sermon title. So I, I finally was bugging Patty and I was bugging Kara and she was, I had her, she was reading from the message and she said, well, there's a part in here that talks about mudslinging. And it just kind of came to me in a flash, like Teflon living in a mudslinging world. You know, and, what, and, what, and what, what that really means is, how many here would like to be able to handle the things that are coming against you like Teflon? You know, just kind of sliding off, you know? You know, it's not sticking. It's not, it's not riling you up. It's not hitting your buttons. It's not, you're not overreacting to this thing. As a matter of fact, you are learning to handle people's approach, their attacks, their verbal assaults, their barbs, rather than retaliating with frustration and anger and disappointment and sorrow and withdrawal and all of those human responses that you and I actually respond back with blessing. How to become blessers when people are not treating us nicely. Well, that's what we're gonna take a look at here this morning. I think that's an important thing. So there's two elements regarding the nature relationships that I want to look at this morning. The first one is simply how to build them. What does it take to have meaningful relationships? And every generation faces difficult, different challenges. And I think, you know, today, I, I feel for our young people today in some ways, and I'll explain why. Because, you know, we have, we have more tools to communicate with, and yet we're communicating less effectively. Anybody kind of agree with that statement? We have more ways and means to reach people and yet we're having a harder time connecting and building significant, meaningful, long-term, maturing relationships. What we have today is a culture that has grown up in a fragmented society. You know, we've, you know people are growing up in broken homes. And I, I wonder sometimes if, you know, we have kind of a disposable mentality. You know, we got disposable plates, we got disposable this. You know, everything's designed in our culture to be, you know, disposed. 
You know, it's, it's almost like there's a timeline for everything. It's, it's like everything has got, it's just, it's built to be gotten rid of. And that includes people. And it just seems like people are just saying, you know, instead of doing the hard work of working through things, we just move on to somebody else in a relationship. We just move on. And yet, I think the scriptures want to teach us something totally different than that. So, um, I th- what happens when we run into people who don't agree with us? How do we work through that stuff? How do we handle rejection? You know, what about just wanting to be loved? Now, here's, it's interesting to me. I think there's some principles in life. You know, if you sow something, you reap something. So everybody wants to be loved, but maybe what we need to do is take the first step. Maybe we need to be loving in order to receive love. Maybe we need to be generous in order to be blessed. Maybe we need to stop looking for people to do to us when we should maybe focus on doing to others. You know, it's the irony of life. You know, it's in giving that we receive. And, you know, but everybody, when we do that, they go, well, I'm looking for the payback. But maybe we've got to stop doing that. And so Peter's going to be talking to believers here who were experiencing tremendous hostility in uh, and persecution that was happening in what we would now know as modern Turkey. That was the ancient area called Asia. They had been told to live a submitted life to those in authority, both civic and within the home. Peter now moves toward a key ingredient in these interpersonal relationships, namely loving people, starting with our relationships at home, moving and extending beyond that to our church family and into a world that sometimes is hostile to believers. And so he starts out here in verse 8. I'm just picking up where I left off last week, and he says, now, finally all of you, so he's talking to believers here, be like-minded, excuse me, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. So, Peter's now outlining in this verse some elements of what would make up harmonious relationships. And a couple of thoughts immediately come to my mind. The first is that he's encouraging us to be like-minded, which I believe is a key to harmony, is a key to unity, is a key to having healthy relationships. He's speaking to believers. He's recognizing that even good people sometimes can run into differences. I know that's true. You can have disagreements, but what are you going to do about them? You know, and you know when you're maturing in life, when you, know, when you start learning how to work through differences. People who live with the idea that there should never be relational difficulties have generally superficial relationships. That's true. Never worked through anything. You know, they've not gone deep enough. Learning to accept others who are different is an element of relational maturity. So what is God's goal for your life and mine? He wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. He wants us to learn to live with people that are different. And I think that's healthy. As a matter of fact, people who are different can help us grow and develop and stretch us. You know, I, th- I think it would be great, you know, if every Canadian traveled a bit and went to other parts of the world and, and, and actually stayed for a while in different countries and learned about different people and how they think and how they think differently and just came to learn instead of, you know, giving our, our opinion, but just asking questions and learning from different groups of people. I think we'd be surprised at how much we would learn from other people. And it would enrich our lives tremendously. We could bring back some of the good things that we'd learn from those experiences. Now, obviously, 
The goal to living together is to live in harmony. The goal to living together is to be in unity. But there are also people who have different opinions and convictions. And sometimes it ruffles our feathers and creates pain in our soul. So the word harmony really means to be in one mind. It, it, it's, it's a musical idea. I know if you play the guitar and you have different notes you can play, but then you can play the right notes together and it becomes a chord. And that's harmony. It's the same thing with voices. We can actually harmonize our voices. How many know singing is beautiful if everybody sings in unison, but how many know it's far more beautiful when we start harmonizing together? It just, it's a totally different sound. That means people are singing different notes. That means that we're allowed to be different. As a matter of fact, I think God celebrates diversities. He created us all different. He created us as different functioning members of the body of Christ. He gave us different backgrounds. We're coming from different understandings. So this actually, when it works well, is beautiful. As a matter of fact, one of the things I like doing is I like going to symphony orchestras because I like listening to you know, brass and woodwinds and percussions and strings. I like all of it, and I love it when it's all done and it's, it's done in symphony. It's powerful stuff, it's moving, it's emotional, and you can hear the different things, you know. That's powerful, and I think God is trying to create that within our lives, and it helps us to mature as we have that happening. Now, how many know... Uh, that's many times people struggle with harmony. People struggle with relationships. We've, we'll all, we can all admit to that. And I remember when we first entered the pastoral ministry, this is a long time ago, and Patty and I were serving as youth pastors on staff at Fort McMurray, and the church was going through tremendous strife. We had no idea, you know, and they were directing a lot of their anger at the senior pastor there, and the problem actually was not the pastor. How many know that when you're the leader, if there's a problem, you're going to get blamed for it? It doesn't matter if you're the problem, but you're going to get blamed for it. And, and, and so let me kind of define to you what the problem was. I had no idea when we went there. You know when you're young and naive, you walk into sometimes civil war and you don't even know what hit you. And that was kind of our first experience in pastoral ministry. So we get up there, and what had happened? You have to know the background of this church to understand what the war was about. So early in Alberta's history, you know, the, the oil sands wasn't going on. And so the people from Alberta that were living in Fort McMurray, and it was just at the very beginning points of the development of McMurray, and they'd been there for quite a while, but they were sacrificing, they'd built their church, and a lot of the people there had really sacrificed to build a new sanctuary in the church. And you know, when people really invest in something, how many know they're kind of proud of what they did? And these people had poured a lot into it, they were proud of their church, but then the oil sands really took off. And eventually they needed workers. And so many people from, from Newfoundland moved to Fort McMurray. The joke when I went to Fort McMurray was, you know, Fort McMurray was the third largest city in Newfoundland. I mean, that's what it felt like. I mean, there were so many people from Newfoundland there, and many of them had Christian backgrounds, and they started attending the church. Well, now you had two dominant cultures. See, it's one thing when you have many cultures sprinkled in, you don't have the same tensions, but when you have two dominant cultures with two different viewpoints of style and conviction and worship style, and they're meeting in the same church, and what happens is the people from the east now fully outnumbered the people from the west, 
So the people that were the originating people felt displaced from their own congregation and the work that they'd built this church. And you could see the tensions now mounting. And they felt overwhelmed by the people from the east. And that culture was now dominating the worship style and everything. So there was a tension. And it was very strong. And so, you know, I, you know I, I'm, I'm eager and young just to see, you know, people get saved, come to love Jesus, you know, the church is growing. And the church was growing, but there was this undercurrent and was pretty significant. And uh, they were not like-minded. They were not sympathetic. Rather than showing love or compassion and humility, what they were full of was division and dissension and criticism. And they... they, they uh, they were entrenched in their own values and convictions. They thought that their viewpoints were the right ones that were biblical. And when people think they're right biblically, it creates a huge clash. So I remember, you know, Patty and I are there, and I'm going, I, don't, I didn't even know what was going on. I, I couldn't get it. I, I was too new. I didn't understand a thing. But then I remember one day, because we'd have, you know, morning service, evening service was a totally different service with a different sermon, and Wednesday night was a totally different thing. So the pastor asked me to speak on Sunday night. So I'm preparing for the sermon on Sunday night, and I'm studying from the book of Philippians. And in the book of Philippians, I'm reading a commentary by Bishop Lightfoot. This is an older commentary, but he's one of the most famous New Testament scholars. And I'm reading the background of the story of the... Of, of the Philippian church, and he says something. You ever have those moments when you're reading something, you go, it's just like a light bulb comes on? And for me it was, because he was describing the conflict that was happening in the church at Philippi. I don't know if you know this, but there's tension in that book. He's telling them to be like-minded. He wants them to have the mind of Christ. He's, he points out two women that are fighting. He said basically this, there were two predominant cultures in the city of Philippi, and it was creating a clash in the church. And all of a sudden, it hit me. This is what we're experiencing. This is what we're experiencing here in Fort McMurray. I've been there for now about a year and a half or so. And I was, I was just like, wow, that is so amazing. But how many know it's one thing to you know, identify the problem? How many know it's another thing to have a solution? Anybody know that's, there's a big difference? You know, a lot of times we go, I, I know what the problem is now. Hey, that's good. Because a lot of times, we don't even know what the problem is. You know, we, we're, we're, we're fighting, you know, an issue that's not even the issue, you know, because they were blaming the pastor for whatever was going on. They just, he was the problem. I'm going, he's not even the issue, you know. He was probably the right person. He was an only child, you know, and he had two dominant, you know, mom and a dad. Probably only children was the only people that could handle pastoring a church that had two dominant cultural clashes going on. So he was kind of trying to make peace with the two groups. It was crazy. So then the question was echoing in my mind. How do you bring people together who have real differences and where do you find common ground? How many think, that was a good question. How do you get people together when you know they're fighting like this? And and then it struck me. I started reading Philippians chapter two. And this is what Philippians 2 says. If any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. In other words, This is where your source of life is coming from, is Christ. If you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Okay, well, there was not a lot of tenderness and compassion, so obviously the Spirit of God was being stifled. And yet, if you'd have talked to the one group, they thought the Spirit of God was moving in great power and might. And I'm thinking, no, you can't be not showing grace and love to this other side, and the Spirit of God's really moving, guys. 
It's funny how we interpret the Holy Spirit. I, I think we, we attribute a lot of things that we think are Holy Spirit driven when it's just our personal emotion. That's true, according to this text. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. He said, no, there needs to be unity. Having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. And I was thinking to myself, you guys, we're, we're, you know, do we share the same love? Do we, are we one in spirit here? Do we have the same purpose? You know, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider the others better than yourself. Guess what was not happening? That part of the verse was not even being exercised. There was no humility. They, were, they weren't saying that the other side, they, you know, they weren't honoring each other. They weren't valuing each other and what they were bringing to the equation. Then he says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now let me just take a pause here and ask the question. If you and I entered into our marriage and saying, my number one goal is to look at the interest of the other person, how many marriages would get transformed in a moment? I mean, just starting out with that thought. You know, my goal is to make sure that I meet Patty's interest. Her goal is to meet my interest. How many go, wow, you've got a totally different relationship going on here? Because now we're concerned about each other. It's like, I'm not just thinking about myself now and I'm making a decision. I'm thinking about my spouse and I'm thinking, how's this going to impact her? And I think that every decision we make in marriage is, how is this going to affect, you know, Mike? Lori's saying that, or Mike's saying to Lori, how's this decision going to affect Lori? And let's talk about it. Let's make sure we're on the same page. And you know what I'm saying? This is really powerful stuff, guys. This, is, this changes our, the dynamics of our relationships. And if we did that in churches, and if we did that in countries, we sat down and said, you know, how is this going to affect this group of people in our country, and this group of people, and this group of people? We sat down and thought about it all. It would have a whole different ramification in making decisions. How many think that's probably true? And then he goes and says, this your attitude your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus now if you're going to you know try to mediate a, a, a conflict between labor and management what you have to do is bring the two sides together and what the, what the mediator does is try to find the common point of agreement so they can build from that point up they can build off of that point of agreement hey listen to in the church, you and I have a point of agreement that Christ is the standard for all of our lives, that we should all reflect his attitude, that we should all be conveying his love. We should have the same mindset that Jesus had. Well, what's his mindset? Who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, it's not about what I want, Jesus is saying. He wants the Father's will to be done. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, he's humbling himself. Now how many can see that when you are walking in humility, you're going to actually foster harmony? Can you see it? And so one of the problems, what creates disunity is pride, is self-assertion. It creates conflict. It's just the inevitable thing that'll happen. It says here, but being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, there's that word humility, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, let me ask us a question. If you and I were to live our lives with this mentality, okay, I was created by God, I'm going to God, my design was by God, my giftings are from God, my purposes in life are to honor God and to, and to, to reveal God to the society, and now 
I'm just giving my whole being to God. So whatever his agenda is for my life is okay with me. As a matter of fact, that's what I want to see happen. As a matter of fact, I believe that I will be the most successful human being I could possibly be if I just do God's will for me. And I will bring more influence and more blessing and more glory to God. Now already that's changing what's going on. And so when God says to me, Listen, your goal is to build up other people. Your goal is to value others above yourself. Already he's changing our orientation because our culture, we don't think that way. It's about us. And yet in the Christian realm, it's not about me at all. It's about dying to myself so others may flourish. It's the opposite thinking. Harmony and humility belong together. For the primary means by which harmony is disrupted what, what disrupts it is pride and self-assertion, according to Thomas Schreiner, and I totally agree with him. He also points out in 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter 3, he says, in the Greek of verse 8, there are five adjectives without a verb. When we look at all five words together, we see that obeying these exhortations will lead to smooth relationships within the church and with outsiders in most cases. So in other words, if we do what verse 8 says, we're going to have healthier relationships. Well, let's take a look at these verses again. It's really powerful. I mean, just think of the, the word humility, creating harmony. To be sympathetic means that we care deeply about the needs, the joys, and the sorrows of others. In other words, I'm coming alongside of people, and I'm going, I'm interested in you. I'm interested in what makes you happy. I'm interested in what makes you sad. See, Paul said the same thing. He says when people laugh, we should be laughing. When they're weeping, we should be weeping. In other words, I celebrate your victories, and I weep over your losses. We enter into each other's lives at that kind of a level. This is a lot more significant than just, oh, we just attend church together once a week. This is actually entering into each other's lives and caring about what's going on in each other's lives. That's profound and powerful. And I also notice there's a pattern. It's really beautiful. It's almost like the first adjective fits the fifth adjective. Notice, let's take a look at verse eight again. See what it says here. It says, be like-minded, and then the last one is be humble. Like-minded and humble go together. And then the words sympathy and compassion go together. So those words, it's reinforcing those ideas. But what's the, the middle words are the focal point of this verse. So what's the, what's the third adjective here? What's the third adjective? What does it say? The one I didn't read. Take a look, verse, verse eight. It says, love one another. Now, let's th- this is Peter. Remember Peter. Now, just think about the Last Supper for a minute. Do you know what was going down before the Last Supper? These disciples were all jostling for position. They were were fighting for position. As a matter of fact, you know, James and John had talked to their mom. She had gone to Jesus. They wanted to sit on Jesus' right hand, one on his left when he's coming into his kingdom. They wanted to rule and reign with Jesus. I don't know where the other ten are going to end up, but these guys wanted to be the one and two lieutenants in Jesus' kingdom. And when we read on the Last Supper, they were arguing to the Last Supper who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. That was their agenda. And so what does Jesus do? There was no servant there to wash each other's feet. So what does Jesus do? Jesus gets down and washes all their feet. Peter's embarrassed by this. They're all embarrassed by this. What in the world is Jesus, the leader, doing washing their feet? He's humbling himself when he's becoming their servant. And then Jesus says this in John chapter 13. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another. 
hey, I think Peter got the message. How many think he kind of cued in that this may be an important thought? He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. How does Jesus love us? He humbles himself. He leaves heaven. He dies to himself. He gives up all of his rights. He's crucified on our behalf. He forgives our sins. He gives himself up for us. There's no greater love than a man will give up his life for a friend. God didn't just give up his life for a friend. He gave up his life for you and I while we were still sinners. It's an amazing thought. He says, this is the key to the Christian life. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. What's the, the, the number one characteristic that should define the Christian? The number one. Thank you. Love. So now I'm going to ask the question, because the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, the end of our faith is love. So now I'm going to ask a question. How loving are you? You see, if you have a faith and what it's producing in you is a bunch of arrogance and a bunch of anger and a bunch of frustration and that you are right, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not as mature as you think you should. You, 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 you really are. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the key to a person who's really a person of faith is someone who is concerned about people, who is loving other people, who is laying down their rights for others, who's denying themselves so other people can advance. That's the true measure of a Christian. It's true. So if you want to take a hard look at where you're at in your Christian life, take a look at it, because that's where it's at. Now let me move on to the second element, is dealing with hostility or differences. Okay, first of all, we talk about building relationships. We already looked at it. If we do what verse 8 says, you're going to build relationships, right? You're walking in humility, you're walking in harmony, you're walking in sympathy, you're walking in compassion, you're loving people. Who's not going to like this person, right? But now you've got to deal with somebody that's hostile or is totally different to where you're coming from. So how do you, how do you build that relationship? That's even a better question. And I think even the best people can have differences. Paul and Barnabas had a dispute over the work ethic of John Mark. As a matter of fact, they got so intense, they, they split up, you know? They couldn't work together. So Barnabas takes John Mark, and Paul goes off with Silas, and they go in different directions. And so it's a classic tension between the work and the worker. And I think we all have that as leaders, you know? Here's the work demanding this, and here are the workers, you know? And you're trying to have that balance of caring for the worker and getting the work done. And it's a... It's a Tremendous tension. And I think Paul later on realized you can't do the work without workers. So Barnabas did a good thing. He gave John Mark a second chance. How many here probably have failed more than once? How many probably needed a second chance? We all do, right? So thank God for Barnabas. So Barnabas takes John Mark and he gets him squared away. He gets him straightened out. So later on, Paul writes, he says, why don't you bring John Mark to me at the end of Paul's life because he's profitable to me for the ministry. In other words, he got redeemed out of this situation. He became a great worker, so much so that most people attribute the gospel of Mark to that guy. Isn't that amazing? I would say that's pretty, that's pretty powerful, right? So don't give up on people. That's the message here. We need to rise above the hurt so often in relationships and demonstrate the goodness of God. Look at verse nine. In verse nine, he says this, do not repay evil with evil. On the contrary, he says, repay evil with blessing. This is not moving now. I don't know why. Okay, there we go. 
Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So what is he saying? He's saying, here's how you and I need to respond to evil. The New English Bible has a marvelous translation and it says it this way. Do not repay wrong with wrong or abuse with abuse. On the contrary, retaliate with blessing. How many like that line? Uh, What's he telling us? He's saying, you and I are not allowed to render evil for evil. You and I are not allowed to curse people. That's That's what the society does. That's what pagans do. The Christian is not allowed to do that. Why? Because you were called to be blessed by God. How many know that we have been called by God to receive his blessing? We have received the life of Christ. We've received the blessing of God in our lives. So the only thing that should come out of us is blessing. We have been called to bless. That's an amazing thought. Now, there are situations, I, I think that when we do that, we break the hate chain, number one. Somebody has to stop the escalation of hostilities. Forgiveness is always in order. I think many marriage conflicts would be resolved if people learn how to communicate forgiveness. For that matter, most strained relationships could be mended if people could use this very tool in their communication with others. In other words, we're going to bless them. You know, often we do not listen or else we don't understand what the other person is trying to say. And how many have ever said words and that wasn't what you meant? Anybody ever say something and then you go, that's not what I really meant? You know? And sometimes the other person goes, yeah, but you said it. You must have meant it. Well, don't do that to people because you don't know what they're trying to communicate. Words are words, yeah. You know, we can't do, you know, we get so literalistic sometimes. No, I think we're trying to hear the heart of the person. Well, what did you mean? I want to understand this. How many situations would end differently if someone said or did something to hurt you and you responded with blessing and a concern for that person? Could you imagine if somebody said something bad to you and all of a sudden you said, you know, I don't think that's exactly what you meant to say. <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, let's just talk about this. Or, like, what's going on in your life? Like, why would you say that? What's happening inside of your life right now? Tell me. All of a sudden, you move from being defensive to caring, a caring stance. Love has the ability to melt many cold-hearted people. Unfortunately, there are some people that you can't uh, get through to. They're just hard. Paul says it this way. In this chapter 12 of Romans, he's talking about the same things. And he's saying, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So it's significant that there may be some people we can't get through to. But in our Peter text here, we're called to bless those that hurt us. And Peter is certainly giving God's wisdom from the book of Proverbs. Let me show you. You know, isn't it, I, I, you know what I find fascinating? That most of the New Testament is just the Old Testament explained with the, in the light of Jesus. They quote so much of the Old Testament. He says here, if your enemy's hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. How many know that's blessing a person that doesn't deserve it? This is your enemy. Do good to them. Bless them. Do good to them. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, that almost sounds like a bad thing, burning coals, right? But it's a form of blessing. I like what Bruce Walke says. Most commentators agree with Augustine and Jerome that the coals of fire refer to the burning pangs of shame that a person will feel when good is returned for evil. His shame is producing remorse in his condition. In other words, how many have ever had that moment in life where you did something wrong and then the person did something right back to you? In other words, you didn't treat per- that person well, but they turned right around in that next moment and treated you very good. 
You ever had that experience? Now, some of you, a few of you, any of you, besides me, I got my hand up. I remember when I was in grade nine, we were talking mean about a teacher. I think she overheard us because immediately she came into class and she said really nice things about each one of us that was talking bad about her. And you know what that made me feel like? This big. I felt like this big. That's what I call heaping burning coals on my head. Because you know what that did? Her goodness made me realize my badness. I would have been justified if she had read me out. I just said, yeah, she's just, you know, whatever. But the fact that she was so nice and kind, she destroyed me, you know. She got right through all my defense systems. It, it affected me. I, that was the end of it. I never, I, I moved away from speaking bad about anybody as a teacher. I would never do that again. That was really bad. William McKay says, when the enemy has steeled himself to meet hate with hate and is impervious through threats of revenge, he's vulnerable to a generosity which overlooks and forgives and capitulates to kindness. In other words, you want to get through to somebody, treat them well. It's really powerful. It's a powerful thing. He goes on to say here in 1 Peter 3, 10 to 11, for whoever would, lo would love life and see good days must keep their tongues from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. What's he saying? Doesn't that sound like Proverbs? He's basically saying keep your mouth shut. That's a nice way of saying it, right? That's more blunt. That's more direct. I'm saying it. If we would restrain our words, we'd probably be in less trouble. You want to see a long life? You want to love life? You want to have good life? I was trying to think of a name of the sermon title, right? You want to have a good life, you know? You want to love life. You want to enjoy life. You want to have good days? Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> be, be more quiet. Uh, they must turn from evil and do good. Our goal in life is to be do-gooders. You know, when people say to you, you're just a do-gooder, go, thank you. That's my goal. My goal is to do good. Thank you very much. I'm glad I'm accomplishing my goal. I'm here to do good. I mean, you're either doing good or doing evil, right? You're doing one of the two. You know, it's interesting that Peter is actually quoting these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 34. You know, I don't know why I've read this so many times, but I never really put it all together. But in Psalm 34, you know what's going on? David is running from Saul. It's a classic story. Saul is out to kill him. So David starts out the psalm this way. He says, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. What is David telling you at the beginning of Psalm 34? He's going to be a blesser. His whole life is lined up to do one thing. See, you have to decide. Saul was intent to kill David. Saul was an angry person. Saul was losing control. He was losing, he, he was, he was losing it. I mean, I've read that, you know, Saul was really coming unglued. His whole inner life was falling apart. He was broken emotionally and mentally in every which way. Why? Because he had abandoned God. When we abandon God, there's repercussions to that, folks. David had made a different choice. I'm going to bless God and I'm going to bless people. So what happens? Saul catches up to David. Whoops. But you know what God does? Saul finds himself going to relieve himself in a cave. Unfortunately, it's the cave David and his men are hiding in, and David could have killed him. So what does David do? He cuts off a little piece of his uh, cloth, of his robe, and then when Saul leaves, he goes, oh, by the way, Saul, look. 
I could have killed you. So here's, here's Saul's response. You're more righteous than I. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. So what did David do? David blessed Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. He was doing evil to him, so David's doing good to Saul. You've just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. What does Peter say? If you will do this, God will reward you well. Where's he getting these ideas from? Right from the scriptures. And he's giving us the example of King David. By the way, did God reward King David for treating Saul well? Totally. Yeah, it took time. See, we're so impatient. You know, but in his time, David became the king. And David always honored Saul and his family. It's really powerful. Read the story. It's amazing. Then he says this. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. I know I've done the wrong thing. I know God's going to reward you, David. You've done the right thing. You've blessed me. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to uh, his prayer. Okay, I'm skipping over something here. Okay, so the idea of blessing, caring, Job says, in the Greek world, the word bless meant to publicly speak well of somebody. Can I just stop and ask a question? You know, are there anybody in our society that we don't speak well of publicly? It's getting quiet in here. <clears throat> okay, so what does this tell you? That we should always be speaking well of people. That's what it means to be a person that blesses. While, there may, while this idea may be in view, she says, it is probably the Jewish and Christian use of the term meaning to invoke God's favor on someone that's primarily intended. Do you know what we should be? We should be people that bring blessing to people. We should be invoking God's favor on their lives. You know, you think, just look at your own life for a minute. Are there people you are cursing? because you're upset with maybe their leadership or what they're doing? Are you cursing them? Or are you invoking God's favor and blessing on their lives? Maybe we need to sit down and start thinking about, okay, maybe I need to make some adjustments in the way I relate to certain people. I need to speak well of those in authority. I need to invoke God's favor and blessing in their life. You know, sometimes, you know, we look at our boss and go, man, this guy's such a cheapskate. I wish he'd give me a raise. He's never done anything like that. I mean, if you're going to talk like that about him, that's words of curse. But if you sat down and said, Lord, would you just bless my boss? Would you just overwhelm him with your blessing and grace in his life? And who knows, maybe one day you might even get your raise. You see, I think we gotta change our conversation. We gotta change our attitudes and our mindset. We gotta be a people, instead of walking around speaking words of curse over things because we're not happy with them, we need to start speaking words of blessing and favor even over those people that don't treat us the right way. David, uh, Karen Jobs goes on to say, Peter's teaching that those who have been called to return blessing for evil and insult themselves inherit the blessing of a life in Christ. Therefore, they are called to a course of ethical behavior that does not stoop to the level of pagans, even though pagan behavior constituted the acceptable social norm. What's the acceptable social norm today about political leaders? We revile them, curse them, 
speak evil of them, denigrate them. Is that the social norm? Yes, it is. So now I'm a Christian. I'm called to bless. Should I be invoking the same social norms? No. Because if I am, I'm just acting like the world. I'm just trying to point something out to us. I, th- I think we've got to move. We, we have to sit down and say, will I obey the Bible? Yeah, but I don't agree with their policy. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. It says, if your enemy does these, when he does evil to you, what are you supposed to do? Bless them. Are we practicing the Bible? You know, I, I'm at a stage in my life, and Patty and I had a long discussion, and I hear people talking like this all the time. God's telling me this, God's telling me that, God's telling me this. You know, I don't have God telling me a ton of things. I'll tell you what God's telling me. It's found right here. And I find that when I obey this book, things go in a certain direction. And I think a lot of Christians are ignoring what God is saying. And we're just going along with what we want God to say. We're just imputing a bunch of things that we want done to say, well, God's telling me God's done. I'm going, stop it. See, right now what I'm saying, I know most of us are sitting going, I don't know if I really want to do that. I don't know if that's really what I should be doing, Pastor. I'm saying, biblically, that's exactly what you and I should be doing. And if we're not doing it, we're actually sinning against the word of God. We're, we're actually moving in the wrong direction. You know, we're not, we're not showing favor and blessing. You know, we should be honoring. We'd be showing respect. I'm, I'm teaching us the Bible, folks. This is what God's teaching us. We need to get it in our heads. Then he says this. Uh, David says this. Listen to this. I sought the Lord. This is Psalm 34. And he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Why do we curse and get frustrated and angry, upset? Because of fear. Fear is driving that. But David said, even though Saul was chasing me with a larger army, and he almost caught David a few times. How many of you have read that? And just when he's about to catch David, God sends a messenger to Saul, saying, oh, oh, there's a problem over here. And Saul has to leave pursuit and go after somebody else. How many know God knows what is going on in our lives and you and I do not have to succumb to the fear of human beings. We need to learn how to trust God and just do what he tells us to do. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So this is Peter now. Almost sounds like he's reading from the same book I am, Psalm. And his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I want to just tell you something. When people are doing the wrong thing, they're fighting God, not me. They're not fighting you. They're fighting Almighty God. They need, they need help. Lord, would you help them? Because I have to be honest. There was a time in my life I was fighting God. There was a time in my life I didn't know him. There was a time in my life I was doing my own thing. But he died. He blessed me when I deserved judgment. He took my judgment on himself. I need to remind myself of that. And then he goes on to say this. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Well, most people won't bother you, right? But then he recognizes, yeah, but there's a few people out there. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. Don't give in to your fears. That's what he's telling us. Let me just close with these, this thought. But what happens when I suffer for doing the right thing? Verse 17, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
And Stibson Walls writes, if the righteous God who has established a moral order in creation not only allows well-doers to suffer, but himself wills that they should, God must have a reason and a purpose. You know, I thought about it. You know, sometimes God lets good people suffer. You go, why is that? Sometimes he lets us suffer because it purifies stuff in our own life. Sometimes God lets us suffer because other people are watching and their lives are affected by our suffering. And they're brought to faith in God. God has a lot of reasons why he lets things happen. But one thing I think I need to come to the conclusion, and I love this verse in Romans, I believe that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And if God's allowing this in my life right now, he's got a good reason for it. And I can bring my concerns to God and God can, you know, I I was just praying this morning in my own prayer time, really early, and I was up really early this morning, and, and as I was praying, I just said, Lord, your thoughts are above my thoughts and your ways are so beyond my ways. I don't even think like you do, but I want to. I want to start thinking like you think. I want to start behaving like you behave. I want to become more like you. That's my prayer. And I want our church family to be like that. Now let me close, and I'm going to have a stand as we close in prayer this morning and just say this. You know, as I was thinking about all of this, and really, what is the goal in our lives? That you and I would humble ourselves. That you and I would, it wouldn't just be about me. It would be about doing the will of the Father and being concerned about other people and coming into that, you know, that humility of mind and heart where we have the same attitude as Christ. Isn't that beautiful? The mind of Christ, giving up our rights, laying down our rights for the sake of others. I'm becoming more like Jesus when I do that. It's powerful. But as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, there's so many people that are so wounded. I can tell you, you know, you need to live a life where you are blessed by God and you can go out and bless others. But you know, there's a bunch of people that right now there's a blockage in your life. It's hard to bless other people because you're so broken. You can only pour out what's in you. And God wants to pour blessing in your life and through your life, but there's a hindrance in that happening. You go, what's the hindrance, Pastor? I believe that so many people are wounded. You know, Jesus said, I've come to heal the brokenhearted. Why are we brokenhearted? We've been misused, we've been abused, we've been hurt. And it creates something inside of us so that when somebody else comes along and does the same thing, we respond now based on a past experience. You know, it's like you you respond out of hurt instead of out of grace because you're still camped in the past. And that's why we, you know, we send people to Christian psychologists so that they can help us identify the broken places and the hurts in our lives, that the past that's still defining our present. But we prayed this morning when we started that God would identify in your own soul. If there's things in the past that you haven't let go of, there's unforgiveness in your heart, there's brokenness in your heart, there's anger in your heart, you know, those things gotta go. Because for you and I to be a channel of God's grace and blessing, we gotta get rid of that junk because it's killing us, it's poison in our system. We can't be a channel of blessing when we're, we're still, we're, we're underneath the curse of someone's abuse and sin in our life. We haven't let all that go. We haven't forgiven that person. We're still camped there. God wants us to get past that. We have not, we've, we've allowed evil to overcome us because deep down in our soul, we're just spewing evil back. Maybe not right directly to that person, but every time someone hits that painful spot in our life, evil comes from us. We are not channels of God's blessing. 
So with this, every head bowed this morning. I believe God's Spirit is searching our hearts this morning. You know, it's not just coming to church and worshiping God. That's the primary reason we're here. It's not just about seeing one another. It's about responding and encountering His grace. And Jesus is here to heal you today. And if you will open up your heart to Him and say, you know, Lord, there's something in my soul. I've got to let go of this. I've got to let go of this pain. I've got to let go of this hurt. I've got to let go of this past. I've got I to just allow the Spirit of God to flow into my being. I want the Spirit of God's blessing to flow into me and through me to other people. I want to be able to, you know, pour out love. Even when people treat me poorly, I want to be able to rise above that. I want the button in my soul to be a button of blessing, not a button of pain and sorrow and hurt. And maybe the Spirit of God right now is talking. Just raise your hand. If you are just sensing in your spirit, you know what, I got to let go of something right now. Just raise your hand. Just raise your hands to God. Say, Lord, I want to let this go. By your grace, I want to forgive this person for this. I know they don't deserve it, but you know what? As I think today, and I see myself at the foot of the cross, I have to remind myself, I do not deserve God's blessing. There's not one of us in this room that could say, I deserve God's blessing. Not one of us deserve it. But he poured out his blessing to us that we were so undeserving of it. You know, last week I talked about entrusting God yourself to God as the faithful judge. Do you know God's going to judge the people you're forgiving right now? Let's let God deal with them. Let's let, let it go. You could never deal with them adequately. Let's let God deal with them. You're letting them, you're entrusting them now to God. Let God's justice fall on them. We're going to pray God's blessing and favor on their lives. We're going to ask God to do a miracle in them because he's doing a miracle in us. It's got to start there. So that we not only forgive them and ask for a blessing on their life, but now we're free to bless other people. We want to be the people that will bring blessing wherever we go. When people come through the wake of our life, they're just going to experience blessing. When people get to know us, they're going to go, man, you're such a blessing to me. I just feel so blessed knowing you. You're so encouraging. You've brought so much hope in my life. You've brought so much encouragement and generosity. See, God wants you to become like him. He wants your faith to mature to the place that you are a loving person, bringing blessing wherever you go. So Father, I just thank you this morning. As we open our hearts to you, there's a lot of hurt right now. But we have this confidence that you're in our midst, Lord, and that you are the one that binds up the broken heart. Right now, Father, as we lift our hands to you, bind up our broken hearts today. Bring healing in the wounded places, even as we're releasing your blessing to this person or people or whatever the incident is or incidences or whatever that is, Lord, that's hindered us from having a flow of blessing come in and through us. I pray right now that that will happen in the name of Jesus that you will do amazing work there. And Lord, I just pray that we will become not only a blessed person, but we will become a channel of your amazing blessing. That we will be able to show favor to people who don't deserve it. But in doing that, we will be just like you, Jesus. That when people meet us, they will go, I now know who Jesus is because I've met Jesus in you. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.